very room There's quite enough love For all the world And in this very room There's quite enough joy For all the world And there's quite enough love And quite enough power To walk through our every fear For spirit One spirit Is in this very room In this very room So I invite you to dip into that deep well, that inner life, that we come together today, answering the call, understanding despite what our world looks like, what our life looks like, the conditions and people and the stories and the episodes that have brought us together today. We are here to deepen in the understanding and the connection and that unbroken relationship with the divine. It is a principle. It is not a personality. It is not a, an, a, a, a man or a woman. It is both qualities of the divine feminine and the divine masculine. It is indescribable. But what is available to all of us is the recognition of it and in recognizing it, and what I know for myself in this moment and for you as well, if you stand in agreement with this and if not, let it wash over you. But we stand in this opportunity once again to dip in that well of awareness and experience and to be anointed. That we are by choice the chosen one in this moment. What has gone before, what has made the sum total of our life story to this point is no more than a story. The divinity... The, the, the Christ consciousness, the Buddha nature, this infinite divine presence, each and every time we turn to it, welcome it, invoke it, there is an anointing, a blessing. And so I stand in that blessing with you this day. I know that everything necessary as we stand in that becomes clear, apparent. The next step made clear. The next opportunity that our divinity shines brightly through our eyes and through our lives and touches lives in amazing ways that we are lifted up in the generosity of spirit to be, a, to be a, an, an agent of change upon this planet an agent of transformation and consciousness and to watch that out picture in this exciting and beautiful and most amazing and sacred time upon this planet and so I'm so grateful to come together today on this brisk Edmonton morning I'm so grateful for a warm room, beautiful music, for Martin Kerr to bring his beautiful consciousness to understand that of all the beautiful traditions on the planet, that beautiful tradition of the Baha'is, their month of fasting that begins. We celebrate and honor all of it, knowing that all of us are called to the right and perfect community, ideas, teachers, mentors, and people that we can teach and mentor as well. For it is not one identity, it is not one activity that we are about, but it is many. For this I give thanks, I give thanks for the clarity, love, and life that is expressed this day by means of everything we participate in. 
in our hearts, our minds, and in our, in our souls as well. For this I give thanks. Releasing these words in gratitude, releasing them in peace and joy and the exhilaration and the thrill of being alive, I give thanks and I invite you to say with me, and so it is. You know what I love about a day like today is that we are one more day, we have one less cold day to experience. We're one day closer. So we can celebrate that, can't we? Thank you, Brown. Thank you, Martin. Thank you, Anna, Karen, Tom, drummer, Tom, Tom, Tom. Tom and Tom. Tom's playing the drums, Tom's playing the bass. And Tom, Tom is the drummer, so anyway. Anyway, I was, when I got up this morning, I went out to start my vehicle because last week I went out <coughs> to start it and didn't start. So I wanted to make sure I could get here and be here with you all or take the bus or call my wife and have her come back and get me. And I was reminded of the story of a very cold day, very much like today, in, in a, a, an eastern Canadian industrial town, and, the, and the, it was a big fire, big industrial fire, and they were battling the fire, and the owner of the, this big industrial complex went to the fire chief and said, look, I, I've got so many valuable documents in the vault in my office, which is in, engulfed in flames right now, and we just got to get to them. And the fire is burning and raging, and the firemen are battling and the, the conditions, and they're trying to put the fire out, and it doesn't seem like they're making any headway. And the, the owner says, look, I will offer $50,000 to any uh, station house that can save those documents. And the fire chief said, we're doing what we can. You know, and I don't know if the money's going to be an incentive or not, but we're we'll continuing to work hard. And a little bit of time goes by, and he says, you know what, I'll double my offer. I'll make it $100,000. And he says, sir, we're doing everything we can. And we're, we're going to get and, and do the best we can. We're not sure if we can save the building or not. And just then, this old fire truck comes over the hill, just full of these elderly firemen. Like the youngest one is like 65 years old. And, and they come rolling down the hill, and the fire chief is you know, kind of waving at them to pull in and park. And they just keep going right through. They go through the barrier, and they go right into the middle of the fire. Fire truck and all, and they all scramble off, and they're running around, and they hook up the hoses, and they're working frantically, and they're moving like lightning, and these guys just go to work, and they put this fire out in about 20 minutes. And they're all standing there, exhausted, and there's smoke rising, and the owner of the facility comes over and says, that was amazing. I've never seen anything like that in my life. He said, I'm so impressed. These, were, these documents were so valuable. There's formulas there that are hundreds of years old. We would never be able to duplicate them. He said, I'm going um, to gift you $200,000 for you and your crew for saving them. And he said, well, thank you so much. And he said, what do you think? And the owner says, what do you think you'll do with some of the money? He said, well, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to get the brakes fixed on this fire truck. <laughs> yeah. So one of where we are uh, looking at this month, worship. And I thought, how beautiful Martin comes and sings this beautiful song of, of worship. And you know, worship for many of us is, a, is kind of a, our, a, an older term that we look at and we think, hmm, now what's that all about, that worship thing, this idea? It, 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 it sort of sends the message in, for many that there's something outside of us to, to uh, offer gratitude or appreciation to or to supplicate ourselves in some capacity that there's some something beyond us that or, or not reachable that we can offer our uh, appreciation to or whatever that takes on and so I wanted to use this beautiful book how then shall we live by um, Wayne Muller he also wrote a book called Sabbath which is one of my favorites this is one of my favorite books of the last 20 years that I've, I've read and I wanted to bring it back because there's four beautiful chapters in it 
And the chapter today is, Who Am I? And it beautifully articulates, I think, um, the core of what we stand for as a spiritual community. And I wanted to share with you, um, to begin with, at the end of the chapter, a, um, a story on page 62, which I think really is a nice place to set the tone for this discussion this morning. And he writes about a man named David. And so David is, uh, well, it, it's in the story, David. David is a well-known painter, so he's an artist, uh, a, not just a house painter, but a, a portrait uh, a painter who has never felt completely at home in the fast-paced glitter of the art world. So an artist, but doesn't feel part of the art world. All my life, David said, my models have been Jesus, Buddha, Matisse, and Fred Astaire. Kind of an eclectic group. But they're people who are artistically and spiritually courageous, passionate, and productive. He says, I now realize that I will never be like them that I have fewer paintings than Matisse, that I am not as spiritually evolved as Jesus and the Buddha, and not as grand as Fred Astaire. I realize that now at 58, I am going to have to let go of my dreams. I have to accept that I will be who I am and make peace with it. It's a little sad, and yet I also feel some relief. Those models were harsh. I had to keep my eye on that star so tightly. I could never allow myself to love anyone or to let them love me. And now I see the goal was not really mine in the first place. And I feel very sad. But I also feel the sense of relief that I am no longer held to that goal. I can finally allow myself to stop pretending, stop inventing myself each day, and begin allowing myself to feel who I am in this moment and make peace with it to begin to start to feel who I am in this moment and make peace with it. Such a simple, powerful practice. I feel I am finally allowing who I am here and now to be enough. So when we speak about who I am and spiritual practice, what a challenge for us to, to look at our lives and realize my life, my life is not the life that I planned in many ways. Anybody here have completely everything you planned out picturing in your life? Have there been a few changes along the way? Heartbreak, disappointment, joys and celebrations, surprises, wonders, traumas. But this is a life condition. And yet it's easy, it's easy to go into fantasy about because I had a goal or I had a dream as a child that I did not fulfill that in some way that I've, I've failed. And, and while that's a very enticing idea, it's just not very productive, and it's actually not true. We make it true. So he asked at the beginning of this beautiful book, How Then Shall We Live? Am I spirit or flesh? Is it just physical, or, or, or are we in the spiritual realm? Are we either or? Are we sacred or secular? Am I irrevocably shaped by the circumstances of my personal history? Have you and I had experiences that have shaped us so deeply that, the, that we're just convinced of who we are? We are that as a result of that circumstance, that condition, that situation. Am I still free to move and grow? To uncover a new and brighter path? Fragile or strong, broken or whole? When I listen to my inner life, what do I hear? What is the substance of my soul? 
the core of my being, what is my true nature? Who am I? Who are you? We begin to look within deeply and we discover perceived imperfections. I've done this, so I wrote this down because I do this. So I'm thinking, I kind of suspect, maybe you do it sometimes. Do you ever, does anyone here feel like you've got some perceived imperfections? Some flaws? You know, like we're, we're beautiful swans on top of the water and yet below we're paddling as fast as we can so nobody will find out. You ever feel like that? It's exhausting, isn't it? So what happens when we discover these perceived imperfections in character and personality, questions start to arise and we start to question our spiritual worthiness. So this idea that we teach is the premise is that, that, that we are the individualized expression of the one. And so, and we have this opportunity to be in this form and to have this, this life experience. But because we, because what I will do is I'll, make, I'll have made mistakes or I, I could have done better or, you know, uh, or whatever it may be. What I planned to have happen didn't happen. And so then what I'll do is I'll take that experience and I'll realize, and then I, then I decide, well, because that happened, there, that I'm imperfect in some way, that I am flawed, and therefore my spiritual wholeness is compromised. Because I've had this experience, because someone uh, victimized me when I was a kid or something, uh, something else happened, that, that, that who I am spiritually has been discounted. And that's such a popular idea. But it's just not true. And it's not healthy. It serves no good purpose other than that story can inform us as we move forward. That's Jeffrey. I just met Jeffrey this morning. He's loving this talk so far. Thank you, Jeffrey. That's sweet. Beautiful. So, Jesus, what did Jesus say about this? Anybody remember Jesus? I remember him. I, was, I, got, a bunch of ho- I got a bunch of holy cards from Catholic, parochial school. And all about Jesus. I had stacks of them, stacks and stacks. I, could, I told you many times. I'd, I'd collect them and collect them and collect them and collect them. I had shoe boxes full. Other guys had baseball players. I had saints because my mother loved that. Until I asked her one day, how many of these do I have to collect before I can start having some fun? But anyway, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. And say, that person next to you is light of the world. You are the light of the world. And so when I was in the Fillmore Church, right now it says something wonderful is happening here. If you ever look at our banner, that it is just at the top of the, uh, the header there. But in the Fillmore Church, when I was first in it, it would say, you are the light of the world, right over the door. I would look at it every Sunday and see that you are the light of the world. And so that, you know, many times I'd be reminded, I'd be looking right at it while I'd be, you know, working on the, uh, conveying a message. It was quite beautiful. The prophet Jeremiah, now well, this is Old Testament. Old Testament, is a, and there's a New Testament. You know, th- this term uh, tithing is an Old Testament term. So when we talk about tithing many times, I've done the, you know, the, the money talk a few times here, but we talk about tithing, it's an Old Testament term. And it means something in the Old Testament. What it means today is different. It doesn't mean forced Manipulated. It simply means it's evolved. That term is evolved. But all of these ideas start, and there's beautiful wisdom in this Old Testament. And so I bring up the tithing thing just because the evolution is you go from tithing to, to generous giving. And it's, it's really about a shift in consciousness. It goes from we go from working jobs to answering our calling. Could be the same thing we talk about from Old Testament to New. Moses represented the Old Testament, Jesus represented the New Testament. Jesus said, You are the light of the world. Well, Jeremiah said in the Old Testament, Behold, I will put my law within them. So Jeremiah was a prophet, 
And Jeremiah was in, had his own mystical experience with the divine. He understood his connection. He did enough of his own work, his, enough of his own quieting his busy mind and listening deeply. And so all of a sudden, things started to pop up for him. And what bubbled up for him is he said what he was guided to express to the people was, behold, I will put my law within them. I will put my law within them. Don't think for 10 seconds that Ernest Holmes did not take this and and use it as inspiration because he read the Bible quite frequently. One of his favorite books, our founder. Behold, I will put the law within them and I will write it upon their hearts and I will be their God. And God for us is good, greater good. God is not a man or a woman, as I said in the opening prayer, but it is a form of goodness, a form of creativity, a form of expansion. It is. Yes, I will put my law within them. And this is what Holmes was talking about. So when we talk about prayer work, when we talk about spiritual practice, it's to shift and change the sum total of our subjective nature, which is our opinions and beliefs and the stories that we bring to this moment. And everything that we dwell upon, we outpicture in our lives. And everyone does it. Everyone is using this law. So when Jeremiah said, Behold, I will put my law within them, and I will write it upon their hearts, he's talking about the embodied ideas that you and I have about ourselves, the opinions that we have about ourselves that can do nothing more than outpicture in our lives. Such simple, simple idea. What a challenge to master, huh? Isn't it? I see Florence nodding her head. Thank you, Florence, for being with me on this. And he continues, and they will be my people. The naming of who we are will set the course of our lives. The naming of who we are. See, who we are, we get to determine. And you know that. Who we are, we get to determine. And it is a naming that determines our lives. It determines what we love, what's precious to us, what we adore. And it determines how we will live and and what gifts we will bring to the family of earth. Those are all the chapters in this book, four of them. Who am I? What do I love? Next week we're going to talk about that. How then shall we live? And what gifts shall I bring to the family of earth? If we are unsure of who we are, we will live tentatively. We will live tentatively. We can do no other thing because life, it's it's scary. Life can be scary. And there is uncertainty in life. But if we understand who we are and we, and we, we, we understand that there really is no death, then, then life is a little different. It's, then it becomes more interesting and fascinating. But there are many people that are so invested in this idea of, of death, this belief in death, because the who we are, the essence of who we are, never dies. This form dies. <clears throat> we're, when we're tentative, we're always guessing where we are, what we, where, should we go, where we should go and what we should do. The Buddhists have a practice, a wonderful practice in their tradition where they will take, um, they'll take Paul and they'll say, Paul, you're the cook. This year you're going to cook, Okay. And then I'll show you afterwards where the spices are down there. Paul will be cooking for us. And then Clarence, you're going to be working the garden out there. And then Deb, you're going to be our, you're going to, we'll put you on latrines for the first year, okay? And so then what they do within the monastery is then, then the next year they say, okay, Deb, you're cooking, and Clarence, you're, you're on the latrines, and, and you're the gardener. But they shift roles. And shifting roles, the impermanence that the Buddhists teach is they realize that, that shifting roles, you cannot hold too long to an idea of yourself, so they're, they're very much about impermanence. It's an, it, it is all in flux. Who we are changes with every moment, every breath. The roles we play can remind us we are always changing. There's nothing solid. 
In fact, I would say that since you've come in here and we've done some beautiful music and we've done some prayer work, you're, not, you're different than when you came in. You've been shifted and changed. You shifted and changed when you got up this morning and said, you know what, I'm going to go sit in spiritual community with people of like mind. I'm drawn to this experience today in some capacity. And it works, it starts to work on you. You know, we, we're doing the movie for John of God today and invite you to come and see it if you'd like and we'll, we'll answer questions. We're going back in September. But what I've noticed with that, and people have said to me over and over and over again, as soon as I made the commitment to go, things started to shift and change. But it's very interesting, and and it makes sense, because once you agree with an idea, once you start to identify with a different energetic, that energetic, that consciousness starts to influence your life. And it's, it's true of anything. It's true of anything we identify with. You know, when we read things in the, in the political column on a, uh, in the newspaper and we identify with a, a certain position, there's a connection that we make energetically with that. And so the, po- the point I'm trying to make, I guess, is that, that that's why it's so important to decide and to make the decision who we are and what we identify with. In the, um, on page 10 of this beautiful book, first chapter here, he calls... He calls the uh, Dr. Uh, Reverend Wayne Muller, and he, as I say, I think he's an Episcopal minister, lives in New Mexico, uh, practices Buddhist meditation. And he uses the bodhicitta. And bodhicitta means the tender heart of awakening. The tender heart of awakening. And last time when we were in, in Brazil with John of God, I was sitting in the meditation. I, I, the whole time I was there, I was in meditation. And I love that. I mean, it's just a, an amazing, wonderful, re, restorative, and, and very quantum experience. It's an s- experience of unconditional love. Uh, and, and quite beautiful. And not anything that I haven't experienced in other uh, points in time in my life, but it's just that it's a continuum for about two weeks of it. And then you bring it back with you, and it takes you a little while to kind of decompress and uh, uh, get back into the linear way of being. But in, he calls the tender heart of awakening, and he said that while he was in this meditation, all of this deep sorrow and sadness bubbled up for him. And I read this, and I just got this rush of energy because that's what happened to me in Abhijanya. A lot of memories and things that were sort of that I had buried deeply were coming up. And they came up exactly as, as he describes here. He said, sometimes it would fill me to overflowing, this sadness. And I thought I would drown in it. And then it would spill out of my eyes as warm tears, turning cool as they fell from my chin. And still I kept silent, which is exactly what my experience was there. And then it got quiet, quieter than ever, and I began to sense something beneath even the sorrow. So I think it's, he speaks beautifully to this idea. All of us carry stuff with us. Some of it we're not even aware of. And all of a sudden we step into an environment of grace and say, show me what needs to happen here. My prayer is that I would like my soul's agenda to be fulfilled within this, this physical life, whatever that is. And that can be huge. And then I'd sit down and all of a sudden I'm thinking, oh, great, I'm going to be in the, the joy and the celebration of life. And what happened was things started to bubble up from childhood and from other places that it was important for me to look at so that I could be in the silence with it so it could dissolve. And so it was really a, a process of mourning in a sense. But what he said, and which was so true for me, is that I could feel a place inside below all the names, my story, my injuries, my sadness, a place that lived in my breath. I did not know what to call it, but it had a voice, a way of speaking to me about what was true and what was right. 
And along with this voice came a presence, an indescribable sense of well-being that reminded me that whatever pain or sorrow I would be given, there was something inside strong enough to bear the weight of it. It would rise to meet whatever I was given, and it would teach me what to do. And I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but that is, that, that is who we are. That is the essence of who we are at the depth of our being. There's that presence and power that is available to all of us. I mean, that's why Dr. Holmes cut to the chase with prayer work. There's one life. That life is spirit's life. And I get to decide who I am by naming it. So I get to say that life is my life. And it's powerful. It's a powerful practice. You know, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. And he said, how many of you got up this morning and said, I'm the light, looked in the mirror, stood before the mirror and said, I am the light of the world. Show of hands. Okay, good. One, two, awesome. Good for you. I love that. But how many of us do that? Huh? I didn't. I am the light of the world. We're reluctant to say. But I'll tell you what we, we typically say, or I, what I've said in my lifetime. I, I'm more than willing, not only to say it to myself, but to say it to other people, because so, I'm so interesting and fascinating. Don't you find yourself interesting and fascinating? But I'll say, I'm a neurotic. Boy, there's a, there's a topic that's juicy, huh? I'm a neurotic, or I'm a child of an alcoholic, or I am an alcoholic, or I'm a manic depressive, a codependent, an adult child of family dysfunction, an overachiever, a workaholic, an incest survivor, an addict, and so forth. Anybody here identify with any of those? Yeah. See, who am I? We get to name. I'm all for the 12-step program. I'm all for this 12-step program. Walter Starkey used to say, he used to say, because he was working the program right along with him, and I met him a few years before he made his transition. Amazing guy, wonderful man. And he used to go to the meetings and say, my name, stand up and say, my name is Walter, and he's an alcoholic. <laughs> it was part of his history. It was part of his story. But, it was, but, but I, saying it in third person softened it a bit. So he says, and so forth, while these names may be accurate in some particular way, tracing the legacy of early trauma, they are limiting and inadequate in the largest sense. They cannot describe our true and deepest nature. They can't describe our true and deepest nature. It is, it is uh, you know, unfathomable. If we believe we're a thief, we'll act like a criminal. Will we not? If we think we are fragile and broken, we will live a fragile, broken life. If we believe we're strong and wise, we will live with enthusiasm and courage. And that's for me. You know, I mean, uh, man, we've all made mistakes. But why would that keep us from believing we're strong and wise? Because the mistakes allow us to grow in wisdom. And to, and to stand tall. The way we name ourselves colors the way we live. Who we are is in our eyes. Who we are is in our eyes. The, the eye is the lamp of the body, said Jesus. The eye is the lamp of the body. So what he was saying there at a very deep level is, is the clarity with which we see life allows us to stand either strongly and, and in wholeness or not. But it is the soundness of the perspective that we bring to ourselves and to the world. And so to keep beating ourselves up and punishing ourselves and, and carrying our story along with us time after time after time. 
is not very sound spiritual practice. It's a very, it's a very popular idea. I get that. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. It is instructive to note that he did not say, you are the light of the world if you grew up in a loving, supportive, two-parent biological family and had no sorrow in your life. Nor did he say, you are the light of the world if you were never violated or harmed, if you never had illness or grief. No, regardless of the shape of the sorrow or victory or grief or ecstasy we have been given, there is a potent inner luminosity that is never extinguished and is alive in us in this instant. A potent inner luminosity that is never extinguished and is alive in us in this instant. And we are the light of the world. There's a wonderful story he tells in here of Pablo Casal. And Pablo Casal said that when we're teaching our children, I love this, because see, they're kids. I love the, the little ones. I, I mean, I watch them come up here. It's like, oh, man, oh, this is great. Reminds me of why I'm doing this, because it's like I get my own work to do, but we got this generation coming, man. Let's hand the baton to them. I mean, there's great things happening on this planet. It's just you don't read about a lot in the newspaper. Seth doesn't sell papers. He said, Pablo Casal, wonderful cellist, world-class musician. He said, when, we, when will we teach our children in school what, the, what they are? We should each say to them, and I think we should each say this to one another and to yourselves. So, yeah, this comes right after you are the light of the world as you look at yourself in the mirror each morning. And say, do you know who you are and what you are? You are a marvel. You are a marvel. You are unique. In all of the world, there is no other child exactly like you no other child exactly like you in the millions of years that have passed there's never been another child like you look at your body what a wonder it is your legs your arms your cunning fingers the way you move you may become a Shakespeare a Michelangelo a Beethoven you have the capacity for anything yes you are a marvel and when you grow up can you then harm another who like you is a marvel you know, how many, how many of us grew up with that? And it's not, you know what, parents, our parents give us everything they got. Our teachers give us everything they got. But to bask in that. And also, the other piece of this is then to be able to say to them from, from Carol Dweck's book, which I love, which is a, around mindset, is it's not about that, that, that there's not work to do to develop that, to develop that Marvel, to develop that Shakespeare, the Michelangelo, or whatever it may be. Look at all the great learning that's going to be in it for you. Look at all the wonderful devotion that you can bring to that. So it's not just simply declaring it and making it so. It's also declaring it and then moving through the the doorways that open to help develop the, the capacity to share that gift. But it's a beautiful thing to start there. You're a marvel. Let's see where this marvel takes you. The process of, of diagnosis, naming ourselves only through what is broken or defective, can fracture our sense of self. We diagnose ourselves through what we, we know is broken about us, and it can fracture our sense of self, become over-identified with it. The, it maligns the resilience of the human spirit, ignoring any possibility of grace that may lie embedded within the sorrow. It creates the illusion that because we suffer, we're broken, defective, handicapped beings. And this, I would argue, can be as damaging as the original hurt. So we've had the story, we have the situation, and we keep identifying with it over and over and over again. And then it becomes larger than the incident itself. We must take care how we name ourselves. 
When we take our name, we are declaring in some subtle, indescribable, potent activity the most intimate, sacred truth of who we believe ourselves to be. For this reason, many traditional people have names they keep secret. Private names they reveal to no one and only to those most intimate. Some are shared only by the divine, with the divine, others only with family or friends. To broadcast our name, to be flippant or unconscious in speaking of it is to trample the holiness of foot. So it's important who we, who we share this stuff with. That's why we have prayer support here and we have practitioners here, and not just this, within this environment, because so, people are so quick to discount it, what's precious to us. You know, I shared my dreams, and nine times out of ten, people would discourage me, tell me I was a fool. Why would you want to do that? You're just going to get your heart broken. And, and, and so it was like I kept looking for validation, and finally I just said, I got to go. I got to go on my own, even though it's scary and I might get my heart, I got I to check this out. Within the sorrow, so many of us have disappointments. Within the, the sorrow of those disappointments, there's a grace. That's that luminosity. And when we come close to those things that break us down, we touch those things that break us open. And in that breaking moment, we un- uncover our true nature within the story. There is the person in the story. Our life, our experiences, our joys, and our sorrows can sound through us without naming us. So we can have the experience and it can move through us, but we don't have to identify with it and name it and say, that's me. But that's, that's an art. That takes awareness. That takes spiritual practice. There is a point of healing. When we have told the story, we can leave the story behind. And what remains is a hidden wholeness, alive and unbroken. So he talks in here about how important it is to tell our story, to share our story, but to not become over-identified with our story. After we've told our story once or twice or ten times, a hundred times or a thousand times, and I've got to tell you, when I was early, early in my ministry, I had a lady come to me, and she kept telling me her story. And I kept listening to the story, and after about the 20th time she told me the story, I finally said, you're going to have to go work with somebody else, because you have convinced me that you are hopeless. And that's not why you came to see me. You need somebody that can see beyond the story. But I, was, I heard enough of it. So what I learned from that was, I can listen to the story so long, but if you're a really good storyteller, I'll believe you. And then I can join you in that condition. And that's why practitioner work is so important, to have someone that sees the truth of our being. That's why people go through practitioner training, is to realize your story is just your story. It's not the truth of who you are. After we've told our story once or twice or ten times, a hundred times, a thousand times, it ceases to be a practice of awakening. It becomes a performance. It becomes a performance. It's who we are. While it may elicit certain levels of sympathy and support, it does not move us beyond along the path of healing. And it does not open our eyes. In fact, it closes our eyes to anything that does not fit into our story. Allowing the story to soften a little bit. Our deeper self reveals its secret. This is the point of healing, not just to tell our story, but to let the story fade away, revealing our true nature. So beautiful. Beautiful opportunity. I want to invite you to close your eyes for a moment as we conclude today and share a practice with you that you can use throughout today, this week. But this is an opportunity So spiritual practice, worship. Worship is truly 
clearing away the dross of experience, that unnecessary energy and remembrance that we carry with us that is no longer required. So our work this week, our opportunity this week, our joy this week, as we speak with friends or co-workers or family members, as we cook, as we clean, as we get ready for bed or we get ready in the morning, with every change of situation, allow the following question to arise gently. Who am I? Who am I? As I'm driving to work, or riding to work. Who am I? Ask the question silently and try to be aware of any ideas, words, feelings, or images that come forth in response. As I meet someone and speak with them, reflect on the question, who am I in this conversation? Am I a leader, the learner, the teacher, the inquisitor, the failure, the collaborator, the light of the world, the marvel, Who am I? And when you move to another interaction, repeat the question, Who am I in this task? An expert? A novice? A performer? A child of spirit? A child in the sandbox? Who am I in this moment? So the point this week is to explore the breadth of who we are and who we think we are in our ordinary life. Watch how your sense of self changes. With each change, what do you notice? How do your words, your hopes, dreams, or postures change when you identify shifts? Who in each moment do you think you are? You are a marvel. Your story is not who you are. Let us soften this story this week. Let us lighten the load. Let us lighten up so that we can grow in a more expansive and beautiful way to be the light of the world. And so it is.